Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Not So Native Podcast. Let me introduce your host. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Aaron Bailey. Kick back and let us take you on a journey as we explore some of Arizona's most fascinating people, places, and things to do. Are you ready? Hello, natives and not-sos. It's Rob from the podcast. Just want to say thank you very much for listening to the podcast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors that we've had in the past. You can see a full list of them and their links in our we- on our website, notsonativepodcast.com. Hey, as we prepare to open, we are looking for sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the podcast, you can hit me up at not so native podcast at gmail.com, or you can simply give me a ring 602-842-2333. 602-842-2333. Stay safe, stay happy, and I know we'll see you on the road. My name is Dennis Arnold. We're here at Barrio Brewing Company at 800 East 16th Street, which is just off of downtown Tucson. I am a native Arizonan and proud of it. My wife is a native Arizonan as well. She uh, comes from the Phoenix area. Mm. Her grandparents were the Stapleys, the Ellsworth, and the Powers. Wow. So all had roads out there yeah. named after them because that's where the ranches were. Right. And, and uh, I think the Stapleys were the first uh, store out in Queen Creek. So I came here. Um, because my dad, he had flown in World War II and went back for Korea. And my mom, to get off the farm in South Dakota, became a Marine uh, in the Women's Air Corps, and she got shipped off to Okinawa. And my dad, between the wars, had gone home and got a law degree. So when he went back to Okinawa, he, uh, he practiced law, you know, drunk soldiers or whatever. And my mom was the court stenographer as we're working for the Marines there, and that's where they met, and they came back to Tucson in 1952 at Davis Mountain Air Force Base, where he was uh, uh, stationed, and they got married, and that's how my family came to Tucson. Right, wow, fascinating. Fascinating story. What we've invested in, quality control-wise, is probably more money than 20 of the breweries cost to put, to open. Yeah. When you, when you get up to a place of production, there's a certain responsibility that comes with it, and that's quality. Mm-hmm. You gotta have the same product each and every time. And even though you think you're doing the same thing every time, there's no way to know unless you test. Mm-hmm. So we have a pretty robust lab, and you know between autoclaves and everything is really expensive, little you know, sea boxes or $25,000 and the size of a lunchbox. Wow. But if you don't have one of those, then you don't know what's going on. You don't know what your, what your oxygen is in your product. You don't know uh, a lot. Yeah. So we do things that with every batch of beer, we, we will take a sample of that and we will do uh, micros on them, try to grow bad things. If there's bad things in there, they'll grow. Um, We'll keep the cans, we'll force age them. We'll do all these things and it's frustrating because I'm te- you know, I've, I've got somebody uh, teaching, he's Charlie uh, Billingsley. He, he was at Four Peaks for probably 15 years and, wow. and, and he'd headed up their quality thing. And when Anheuser-Busch came along, he, he figured it wasn't for him and, and uh, moved on. But I, I, I'm fortunate to get him a couple days a week and he's teaching my guys labs. 
And they sit there and go, nothing ever shows up. And, they're, and he's like, exactly. But the day it does, you will know. Right. And that's the whole point of it. And, and, and it's hard to get in. It's like, I think we're the only brewery in the state outside of Anheuser-Busch that has a can seed checker. They're, it's a very expensive, $20,000 piece of equipment. But you don't know if the seam on your can is going to be good its whole life unless you have this checker. You can try to do it manually by using a little you know, finger micrometer, but when you're talking about two thousandths of an inch right. is your tolerance, that's a fat finger to a thin finger difference. So we bought the machinery where we cut a can, every run we're cutting cans open and we're putting them in uh, through a system and the system automatically is checking it and they're telling us, you got a good can or you don't. So that's a, part, that's a part of the business. So yeah. Who knew there was all this science? Yeah, I I still think it's magic, but I hire people that 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 can tell me it's it's otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I I just like that it looks pretty inside this glass. Well, we literally got a a microscope we're looking at here. We we even went up on that. I used to sit there through that microscope, and as I'm getting older, I'll be 60 in February. I'm looking, I'm trying to count yeast in my eyes or like going over the years. I'm like, oh Lord. And then I found out there's something called a microscope camera. So there's a little inset you put in there and then all of a sudden you have the hemocytometer show up on a TV screen and you can sit here going one, two, three, four, five, six, you put your fingers on them as opposed to looking through a microscope because you're counting yeast and you need like like a ridiculous amount of yeast, like, you know, 400 billion cells and you got to be right there. If you're high, your beer is not going to be what you think it is. If you're low, it's not going to be what you sure. think it is. It's got to be a, a, this number uh, that the guys say. And so the only way to do it is to take a representative sample of your slurry and count it. And so we, that's kind of the, the, the basics of lab. And, and we get everybody on board on that so everybody can do it and they understand the importance of things. Um, we've got uh, instruments that will wipe the insides of tanks. And then we put it into this little reader, and it'll tell us, you know, if you've got any Make type sure of bio load in there. Or it, yeah. So it, there's a lot to it. When I started, there was there was no industry. There was no in- industry whatsoever for craft beer. So I graduated in 1984 from NAU, and I, I grew up right next to the University of Arizona here. But if I'd gone to the U of A, I would have lived at home. Yeah. There's seven brothers and sisters, and I got pretty tired of, you know, <laughs> sharing beds when we were young, yeah. and, and uh, so NAU was it. And uh, so I went up there. You were going to Arizona State, for God's sake. Well, my, my first job was selling Cokes at the U of A Stadium. Yeah. So it was pretty tough to think that uh-huh. I could go be a Sun Devil. Um, anyway. We joke because we're both. Yeah. ASU. Yeah, I can imagine. I got arrested once in, in that stadium, but I'll <laughs> tell, save that story for another time. To, um, so I, I met my wife uh, up in uh, Flagstaff, and in 1984 when I graduated, I graduated with a degree in journalism, so it kind of meant that I had to go get my master's in bartending. And so uh, we moved to San Francisco. A friend of mine oh, wow. had gotten a job as a manager of a, uh, of, a, of a big restaurant up there, and so I went to work bartending. And shortly after that, I was offered a job by one of the salesmen, wine salesmen from Southern Wine and Spirits, and I was like, okay, you know, I'll try to be a wine salesman. So 
off I went, and it was a really weird job because I was selling like wild Irish rose to, to these little uh, liquor stores in Oakland and Berkeley that would just be hobo wine and you know fortified wine, wild Irish rose. A little bit of rebel I'd sell a couple, hurt anybody. I'd sell a couple hundred cases of that to every doggone store, and then I'd have to chase them down the street 30 days later to get paid for it. But it was it was a it was a way of growing up. But one day they give me a license and they say, hey, we don't know what this this liquor license is. Go run it down. Go sell them some wine. And I walked into a place in Berkeley, and it's called Triple Rock, and it was a brewery that was just opening. And I had no idea that you could actually brew your own beer. So I walked in, and it was like, I think the second brewery in the area, Buffalo Bills, I think was the first. And uh, I was like, this is pretty cool. So I started talking, there's a pair of brothers, John and I can't remember what his brother's name was, Martin was their last name. And they're like, yeah, man, taste this. And we're just like, this is really cool because I love beer and, and in college, I had my dream job. Um, I was the bud man on campus at NAU, and I got paid $75 a week in 10 cases of beer and bar tabs to go around and promote Budweiser products. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. I mean, this is, I could live yeah. like this for the rest of my life. <laughs> Nowadays, being called the bud man would be a completely different business. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> very true. Although, although, although Budweiser's is in a lot better uh, position now than the, uh, the the weed sellers up in Canada. They're taking an awful beating. Yeah. Yeah. I would not want to be in the weed business right now. Um, anyway, so I looked at that and I came home and I was like, hey, honey, I think I found out what I want to do. And she's like, what? And I said, well, I, I, I want to open a brewery. I can make my own beer. I love beer. Well, this is good. This and she, good goes, uh, she goes, well, you know, uh, write up a mission statement or whatever, a business plan. So I sat down and I got out my electric typewriter. And the first line was, um, if, if I open up a brewery, I drink free beer forever. And so that was the, that was the start of it all. So we're sitting up there, and it's 1985 at this point. And I go, let's go to San Diego and open a brewery. Well, sure. So, and there was, nothing, there was nothing down there. Right, Mission Brewing was in there. There was nothing yeah. down there. And so away we go, and we, we rented a, a moving van to move all the wine that we had, because I really got into wine working for Southern Wine and Spirits. And uh, everything else fit in the trunk of our car, and away we went. So I got down to San Diego, and I typed up my business plan, and I went down to city council and said, hi, this is what I want to do. And they said, no, it's illegal. And I said, no, it's not. It got legal, you know, like years ago. And they're like, well, no. So then I went and got to, up to Sacramento and got copies of stuff and the law changes and all this other stuff. And I went back and they told me, well, kid, we're never going to allow a brewery in the city of San Diego. They stink. And I was like, what are you talking about? So there was somebody who worked within the council who had lived back east next to a brewery that apparently stank. You know, I have FX Matt, I don't have any idea. Well, but they were like, we will never allow a brewery. And I'm like going, so I keep banging my head against the, the, the wall and trying to go down there and convince and stuff. And in the meantime, um, uh, my wife's working two or three jobs keeping us in food. And then I had had jobs at the time. I was doing some beer stuff, introducing like, you know, little mini Mexican beer bottles and uh, hell, I was a commodities broker for a while, but the whole in time. In 1985, San Diego's still reasonable to live in. Um, you really what? Not for not not compared to Tucson, Arizona. Oh well. So anyway, um, so I started, you know, running across it out of Jack White's um, home brew shop, 
who eventually was Ballast Point, um, ah. started meeting some like-minded people and things like that. And one of the guys came up with a crazy idea that it, there was no industry. So any tanks to be made were going to be made from probably the dairy industry or okay. the wine industry, but there was no craft brew industry at that time. Well, there was no internet at the time. Well, so it's not well, like you can look in the classified ads in the yellow pages, which by the way was the worst job I ever had, was selling the, the, the fake yellow pages, that little book that you always throw away in your driveway. Yeah. Oh, my eyes thrown out of more places going, no, really, you do need a second yellow page ad. It was awful. So um, the last job I had in San Diego was flipping hamburgers after the stock market crashed when I was a commodity broker. There were no more you know, investors, so I ended up at the Coaster Saloon flipping burgers. So um, anyway, we got no shutdown enough in San Diego, but at the same time, I fell in with a group of like-minded guys, and one of them comes up with the idea that let's build our own equipment. And it's like, okay, and then the idea morphed into, there was a real bitch in scrapyard in Escondido, California that had really nice steel. So oh, you'd find a lot of sheet steel that a forklift had creased a little so they were rejected by um, you know, whoever what the end user was gonna be. Well, you could buy that for pennies on the dollar. Uh -huh. So we'd load that stuff up on trailers. And at midnight, we would drive down through the border at Tijuana with a $50 bill and the guy would let us through, and we set up a small welding shop down in Tijuana, and we produced brewing tanks. Oh, wow. And so we ended up, I'd go out and sell Absolutely breweries, and then the, the profit that I would make, I'd build myself a couple tanks. So this went on for some years, and it wasn't easy because, you know, thank God it was before 9-11, but we were like literally taking welding gas down because welding gas was like three times as much in Mexico and when we were bringing them back up boom boom they're the border guys what the hell are these wrapping them thinking we got them shut full of weed or something like that right. but they got so used to seeing us coming and going they'd always give us crap but they always let us through out at, 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 at Ote Mesa so you're 30 years old at this time yeah I'm coming up Rough, to that rough, yeah. roughly about like 20, years yeah, 20 years old yeah yeah okay so uh so we get out fun story, we get out um and we start then properly importing the breweries. And um, let me think, we did the, orig the original Mission Brewery. Oh, the one down in, uh, in downtown by the water? Uh, yeah, that's now called Latchkey. My daughter is actually, she works in that building, she's an architect, and every, oh, no every time no. I see that brewery, I go, I moved that son of a, yeah. that, that, that beast in here. I was just down by there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right there on Washington. So oh, then yeah. there was Pacific Beach Brewing Company, and that went out of business in 95. And that's the first and only time I ever stole a brewery. That's a whole other story. Uh, from, from, from one of the Boski brothers. Remember, remember the insider trading guy was his brother. Oh, uh, wow, I, I installed yeah, that wow. brewery and then I stole it and resold it five years later. Um, so then there was La Jolla Brewing Company. Uh, some of the Callahan stuff. There was Manhattan Beach Brewing Company that we built. And then there was the original mine was Gentle Ben's Brewing Company. So from the from the television show, uh, that's where the name came from. Jeez. So that's in '91. That's where I opened. It was down just a block Anyone off the University it? of Arizona. No, no, oh, yeah. I got I so it, by '88, I saw that the law was being changed in Arizona to allow brewing, and oh. I, and I'm like going, like, San go Diego home. is yeah, I'm gonna go home because I got family, I've got a, a, an amazing uh, lady who wants to have babies. 
and we'll have support. And maybe Those we'll try. brothers and sisters aren't such a pain in the butt right now. Well, they were a lot of babysitters, but this kind of like with 15 <laughs> nieces and nephews and stuff. It's like it was great to have all the, have all the kids running around. So we so we moved back here. And um, and then we sat upon you know opening up a brewery in Tucson, Arizona. So I had all these tanks stacked in Mexico, just waiting. And so I put some things together. And then it took a long time because that was right after Reagan's uh, tax stuff. And then money became impossible to come by. It was a tough time to try to start a business. Sure, sure. But May first, nineteen ninety one, boom, I load in the uh, the brewery. And uh, fire her up, and then away we go. Where was this at? Uh, it's uh, located uh, 865 East University. Uh, we sold it two and a half years ago. Um, we moved down here. Where we were, that we, was it. Okay. We were we were 14,000 square feet down there, but when it grew, uh, when it was time to have to grow the brewery in the late 90s, there was. I would have to have said, I'm sorry. I'm going to take all this customer space and put more tanks in. So with that real estate being so prime, I said, I gotta find a building and move to brewery. So I started that in 99, and I, I got an initial yes from the city to move here, but the city of Tucson runs a little on the slow side. So by the time I got done with all of the absolute, just blatant roadblocks to doing business in this town, 3,000 days later, I get open. Three. That's, 1999, that's but it's a blessing because I had a baby and I had my third kid and my wife had our third yeah. in 98, so kid. I was able to like really enjoy a baby for seven years instead of like having all of a sudden have two businesses, so there's some yeah. blessings there, but it was also the most prolific time to build and make money from 2000 to 2006. Did you, sure. So when you got rid of the building down on university... Did you buy this location that you Well, I bought now? this building in 99. I didn't own that one down there. So we kept brewing there through 2006. Okay. And then in 2006, when I was finally able to get, because they, I mean, here's the type of roadblocks. You can, you are limited to an occupancy of 135, but we demand that you have 260 parking spaces. That is insanity, and it's a particular type of insanity. And it, it's right now, there's a brewer from California, a really great brewer, Tommy Arthur. Um, a couple of uh, local guys really want to open a brewery. Tommy's a great brewer, and they went to, I think actually they went to NAU together. I can't remember, recall the name of the investors. Um, but anyway, they've been at it for two and a half years down the street here. And I don't even think they've broke ground. Tucson's just a tough place to try to get going. Sure. And, and there's a brewery right up here that started two and a half years ago, and they still don't have their tap room open. So it's this town is just littered with bureaucratic roadblocks. Um, anyway, when people ask me, how do you do business in, in, in Tucson? I go, just learn how to do business in North Korea, conquer that, and then come down here, and, and, then, and then you will at least have, you'll at least have a, an idea on what we're talking about. Um, so anyway, we get open in, in 91, and, and you know, we, we go along, and I've got, uh, a couple months after we open, you know, I'm working the kitchen, I'm the chef, I'm the brewer, and then my wife has the most impeccable time, and she goes, "Let's have a baby." I'm like, "Oh, sure." You're the you're the <laughs> so, chef. So. Did you did you were you a cook before? That's you my got natural. Ability. That's my natural before. ability. I've never homebrewed once in my life. 
I've never brewed anywhere else. I taught myself how to brew by reading a magazine. I tried to read Charlie Papazian's book, but he wanted to talk in metric, and I and I didn't learn metric, so I kind of got a temperature ideas by, by cross-referencing, you know, uh, the C to the F and coming up with the right stuff. And then there was a, a lady uh, at the malt company uh, back in Chilton, Wisconsin, uh, Mary Ann, uh, just the sweetest lady ever, and. Um, I'd call her on the phone and I'd go, so if I was going to be a porter, what would I look like malt-wise? And she'd sit there and she said, just hang around your fax machine. I'll send something in an hour or so. So I'd hang around fax the fax machine, machine. <laughs> rip it off, and uh, use between 2 and 5% this malt, use between 4 and 8% that malt, la, 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 la. That's how I learned how to brew, because it's just like cooking. You know, fewer sure, ingredients, and then it's taste and it's change, just, it's just, it's and then just, you get it dialed in, yeah. and then there was so much feel to it, because like um, the the little unit I have right now, the C box that tells me how much carbonation is in the beer I'm drinking right now, mm-hmm. cost twenty five thousand dollars. The most basic unit at the time, a Zaman Nagel, cost twenty five hundred dollars. I couldn't afford one of those for like eight years. So it was like, put this much gas in for this long and see how it tastes. Sure. And then it was like dead reckoning uh, at, a, at, that, at that point. You know, you just had to kind of guess every time and see what came out. And, and so, so it worked out. So we had babies and we had business and, and we had fun. And then when I moved the brewery down here, it was kind of an afterthought because I'm always a kitchen guy. And I said, hey, you know, this is in the middle of nowhere. You know, nobody, this is a dead end, you know. So I said, I'm going to put in a little restaurant anyway. And my, my plumber always tells us the, the, the story, Phil. Every week he'd come to me, hey, I'm really short on money. Can I get paid? And I'm like, Phil, really? This is like a long project. And usually I pay in like, you know, tranches. And, you know, he goes, I'm really, my guys. And so years later, he tells me, the only reason I was asking to get paid every week is I figured that you were going bankrupt because that was such a bad location. And I said, good, Phil, and you're never working for me again. Yeah. So, yeah. so oh, what a pain in the ass. Uh, so from there, um, for some reason, people found us, people uh, liked us, and we've been in business going on from the beginning of 29 years, and with the exception of Low the fourth quarter of 2001, where a couple a couple of miscreants flew planes into buildings, we've always been able to grow and have not had up and downs. We've always just yeah. been super super steady. So this year has been our best year, and last year was our best year before that. Why why the name Barrio Brewing? So on that side is Bar is Barrio Historico. Over there is Barrio Anita, and I'm going for 29 years. Barrio. It's been the same name. Uh, no, so when we moved the brewery out of Gentle Ben's in 6 to here, uh, I wasn't going to name this Gentle Ben's 2.0 because th- it's 13 blocks apart. It wouldn't make any sense. So I'm looking at it, and this was a 1947 Quonset hut. The only parts of it were this, the steel walls that you see on the outside. Everything right. else, my wife and I are design builds, and we love repurposing stuff yeah. wood steel everything every little piece i look at's got a story that came out of st ambrose swimming pool structure that was the harley demo building the lamb beams down there were this or that so we just always built along as we went and so that's when so barrio came up as like going barrio brewing you know and so so barrio means neighborhood mm-hmm. so it's like neighborhood brewing company i thought what a great fit that's the name we're gonna go with and so um you know, the rest is 
We continue to grow. Um, we've got a, a project that we're, we've got on the north side that's quite um, uh, large, and we put it off for some years. Um, my youngest uh, child, Reagan, she'll be graduating uh, college in May, and so all the kids are out of the house, and uh, they've got amazing careers. All of them worked from the time they were 13 years old in the restaurant business, and the first thing they learned is they don't want to be in the restaurant business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got them super proud of my children. They all work so hard in school, and they've got great careers, architects, engineers, cybersecurity, um, just some things where they can't be, re be replaced by robots. Um, it, there's uh, creativity there, and, uh, and they're just, I couldn't be happier, you know. So in that spirit, um, right now what we're doing, and this is like, will be probably the first time anybody hears about it, is my wife and I, um, we've been together, gosh, 35 years, and I'm like, let's not work together anymore <laughs> because we live in together and let's start and I said but what do we do so we were approached by some people you know to buy us and I kind of looked at that and I was like well you know I don't know I really love the people that I work with and I want the best for them and there's no way that I can control what's best for them once we sold right. we had that we had that experience with General Benz where, where General Benz changed dramatically after we left. And we're like, oh God, I had built this bar that I thought would last 100 years, right. that had the most beautiful granite riverbed rock on it and all this stuff. And now it's tore out and there's a shiny piece of stainless steel with white statuary marble on that. We're right. like, for 25 years we built that place. And then all of a sudden, new owners, they want a whole new look, and I'm like, it's their house. And, yeah. and, and, can't control and can't control it. But boy, that was really something that we did down there. So then I'm like, if we sell this, this what's going to happen when, when companies like this sell is that we were like the third or the third, maybe the third largest brewery in the state, uh, independent. And um, somebody's going to buy it. They're going to come on in and they're going to want to change things. They're going to want to figure out how to get efficiencies. They're going to figure out my employees that have been around for 20, 20 years, you know, well, I can hire somebody cheaper than that guy. And so we decided that that's just not something that we wanted to do. But at the same time, it was time to, you know, transition out of ownership. And so very shortly here, um, we will be the first brewery in the nation that goes 100% employee owned uh, from oh, day wow. one. Yeah, so we're just at the end, we're at the paperwork stage, and we're giving 100% of the company to the employees. That's cool. So, uh, That's fat cool. tire just... Uh, well, there's, there's, there's a couple that. different ways. So we're the first one to go, we're all in. So the, the people at New Belgium sold New pieces Belgium to the employees over 14 or 15 years. They sold what? Uh, they, they, sold, they, they sold little parts and pieces over 14 or 15 years. Uh, uh, up, up, at, up at Odell's, you know, they sold like, the ownership kept 30%, gave, you know, sold 19% to the employees, then sold 50% to their key people. Uh, uh, modern times, they pieced it out. Did 30%. Out. We're like, no, all in. We're just going to go, guys, guess what? You're the new owner. Here you go. 
Figure and, it out. And think, well, <laughs> no, actually, so I put think? together a board of directors. Oh, good for you. And a wow. stellar board of directors. Um, I have got, um, I've got a, a, the smartest beer guy in the country. I've got an amazing uh, restaurateur that has 20 or 30 restaurants. I've got an attorney accountant for compliance issues sure. and things like sure. that. Um, I've got a guy who's a retired fire chief of Orange County who's just somebody who his whole life has managed people and situations right. and can understand employment structures and things like that. And then we hired a new uh, a COO for the first time because this has always been mom and pop. Right. This has always been me sitting back there drinking beer, hollering out the door what to do the next day. So that all is getting changed over right now. And Jamie Dickman, um, who's been in the beer industry for 17 years, so we've known her, um, we went and, and we went nationwide and we interviewed a lot of people. And we realized that there are a lot of people out there with a lot of bad ideas on how to run things. Um, they, they, are, they, were, <coughs> they were a crazy collection. And when people responded to our, our advertisement in Brewbound, we have all these vice presidents coming from all these other companies that are really sinking. And in, 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 you know, because let's go to 25 states things and they, mm. they come in here and I said, we're just looking for somebody that can keep this boat exactly on the course it is. No cra nothing crazy. We're debt free. Just you know, make keep it that way. And make good, good beer, beer. And, and make good friends. And, yeah, make and, good and, friends. And, and don't do any of this crazy keep stuff. Keep it in the neighborhood. And keep it. And so I had guys that's flying in the interview and they're like, well, you need a vice president of diversity, a vice president of marketing, a vice president of sanitation and I'm just like oh my god no no wonder your brewery failed you know <laughs> right. you, you didn't learn anything you just figured it didn't work in your state it didn't work in this one right so I was just going oh no this is gonna be hard to because to us it's who you work with there's a there's a story Absolutely. there's a story that I like so we had a bartender at uh, General Benz and General Benz a brewing company had an occupancy of 860 people and so it was a restaurant, brewery, and then nightclub because you're sitting 200 feet off campus. We'd run a thousand people through the door. Sure. So we would do some crazy bar business there. So there was this one bartender, Eric, and this guy was literally just a robot. He could go down the bar, take 30 orders, tell people what they owed, go pour those drinks in 36 nanoseconds, put them down, collect the money, and go twice as fast as anybody. But at the end of the night, he would just kind of just belittle other people for being so slow. I outran you by double. I ran $7,000 a night. You didn't ring three. You suck. And it's like, Eric, shut up. Enough. It's who you're working. You know, you've got to enjoy who you're working with. And we're not enjoying you right now. Right. So this went on for a while. And then my wife gives him his best last, like, don't do it again. And then after a homecoming where we're doing just a, a ridiculous amount of business. 3,500 people we put through that place wow. on homecoming. Just no busier place in the state of Arizona and that for, for, for that kind of day. And so Eric, and he had made $2,300 in tips that day or something crazy. And there he starts running his mouth. And my wife back up and says, Eric, this is your last shift, I've told you. And Eric looks at my wife and goes, I'm the fastest guy you got. 
who are you going to get to replace me? And my wife looks at him and puts up two fingers and goes, I'm going to hire two people. <laughs> Problem solved. Right. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I guess that would work. Yeah. So, so that's, it's so important that it's who you work with. And uh, we yeah. have employees that have been with us for 25 years here. And they're like family. And so when we started thinking about a graceful exit, that was the only thing we could do. Is that we got to keep them where they, because young people, nobody thinks of their retirements. You know, mm -hmm. like we offer a 401k, we have less than maybe a 20% or less uptake of the employees doing it because they're just like, oh, I'm not going to be 65 for another, you know, 30, 40 years. Right. So this is a way that we are able to do this with an employee stock ownership program where it's no money out of their pocket. We basically back, back out by buying it from ourselves and giving it to uh, uh, the ESOP. And then as they put in years with the company, they get stock. And then when they retire, they will have enough money to live on for the rest of their lives. And so we've, we've done this, you know, put it through the actuarial calculators. And, you know, if everything just stays on the average of what we've done, then they, they all, all will have really dignified retirements because I read a lot and I'm not so sure Social Security is going to be there for anybody mm -hmm. another 10 or 15 years. So this is just a way to kind of to, to at least do what we could do right. instead of just, we, I've seen some sales in, in, the, in the distributor and in the brewery business and, and I looked at them really hard and I saw how much devastation when hundreds of people are getting laid off and fired and, 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 the, and the people at the top just shoved their pockets full of money and left, you know, left a ham sandwich on the table and said bye. There's a difference in, in knowing your community and being just a capital investor. That's true. One of the things that we're doing in this is that we had broken off a piece of the shares earlier and we had formed uh, the Barrio Brewing Foundation. Mm. So we've set what is a seven-figure pot of money out and we're going to have that as a community investment. Uh, there's something called the Community Foundation here in Tucson that's a clearinghouse for 7,500 uh, three C's and it's kind of incredible what they can do um, let's say there's a family down on the poor side of town big storm comes in rips off their roof what do you do I can't run down there and put a roof on for them but what I can do is I can go into the community foundation and there is uh, a 503 uh, uh, group there that's a bunch of contractors that will donate all their time if somebody will buy the lumber and the nails and the roofing paper to put a roof back on their house. So that's what we're planning on doing for our time going forward. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna target it. We're not gonna be giving money to the United Way or whatever. We're gonna really look at those places that you know, really fall through the cracks, that, that there's, they're, they're too little to be noticed by the average charity. So that's gonna be kind of fun, fun. Yeah, we're gonna do it in Tucson. We're also gonna go up in Phoenix. So we're gonna give, we're gonna look at how much business we do in Phoenix and we're, and we're gonna take, take the money that way. We do well that. with, we have a, um, uh, a Barrio, Mesa, Barrio Brewing Mesa yes, there. Yes, yes, And Navas, Navas Singh runs a tremendous operation up there. Uh, and, and, is that what uh, 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 Navas Singh is his name, uh, Kind Ooh. Hospitality. 
And they also are the, uh, they're the group that just bought the Macayos and things like that. Mm -hmm. So Nava's very in tune to this kind of stuff too. So we're going to say, find out what that need is in Phoenix. That's and let's awesome. see what we can do 10 or 20 or 30 or 80 or $100,000 at a time. Right. And, and, and that's something that, because we would not be where we are today if we did not have the support of our community. And just to get up and say, thanks, I'm going to go get on the first Elon Musk space ride right. and go have a hell of a time, that's just not something that we've been so blessed to have family without health issues. You know, um, we have not had any catastrophes that have happened. Guys? Hey, Luke, how you doing? Good. Just picking up stuff on the way to an event. No. Okay, we're doing the plan. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? This is his Luke. What, what event you headed to? Uh, brew lights at the zoo. Oh, oh very nice. Oh. It is December. We heard about this today. We were talking with um, Kat over at That's the no Desert, Desert Museum. Desert. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah she said uh, That's a cool spot. They, they do some interesting stuff over there. With yeah, the, the zoo's always a fun one. There's a couple a year. Brew at the zoo and then the lights. Yeah, and this one. This one, every year it rains. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've, got the tents, I've got the tents. And last year we were lucky. We were undercover by, like, the lions. So this year should be good. Tara and Tony and Tom, they're going to come out. Oh, very cool. I very cool. love your uh, native Arizona accent. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been working many years on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, yeah. Luke, well, this was Luke's. Where are you from? No, I'm from Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, South yeah. Africa. So it's the Dutch, not the German. The, the, <laughs> this, is a, this is his first job that he's had. Um, uh, that was legal. That was legal, <laughs> and uh, he got he married a wonderful uh, a wonderful lady here, and uh, uh, this this year uh, he became an American. So now you know, and, and so he's Luke. Luke does. Uh, Luke is the logistician and the lab, so he handles all yeah. the L's, oh, and yeah. so he's learning because I mean the, he had, the. The unique thing about this brewery is between the eight guys that work here and then me, nobody has ever worked at another brewery before yeah. or, or even homebrew. So we're all oh. just like, they call us the Galapagos Island Brewing Company because whatever happened here <laughs> happened by natural selection. Yeah. And so it's kind of fun because Luke came and he had no bad habits of brewing because he had no brewing habits whatsoever. Yeah. And then we just kind of grew up. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, so yeah. So it's yeah. it's kind of nice that way, and everybody's like Luke's grown so much this year. Uh, he has a mentor, Charlie Billingsley, who's been teaching him the lab side, yeah, and uh, and the logistics alone. Just like you know, you've got cans, cartons, cases. You're shipping, receiving, okay, all that, this that, stuff. That, is that just, crap always amazes yeah. me. When I when I look at the grocery store shelf, years ago my friend worked at. Uh, he was an over the road truck driver. And he said, you know, everything that you buy at the store was on a truck at some point. Yeah. And so I, I, after that, I was like, damn, you really think about how things get from, point, from the manufacturer from point A to point B. There's a lot of movement. Yeah. They call it there. the last 10 miles is the most difficult. <laughs> oh, because really? you, you, you can move something 12,000 miles around the country. Trying to figure out how to get it that last 10 miles is pretty hard. Yeah. You look at our distributor, Hensley. They do like $700 million a year. They do 30 million cases of beer in a year. 
they've got to get that it was nice meeting case you by guys. case. Hey, good luck. Yeah. Have fun in July. Enjoy. Yeah, it's a good one. Enjoy. I think, in fact, Kat and her crew from Desert Museum are going to be there. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are badass. So yeah. I'll, I'll look for them and say what's up. All right, bud. Take care. <laughs> so uh, it's that last 10 miles. So if you think about like what a beer distributor does, the logistics are crazy because where are you going to park the truck? Right. To next to how many accounts can you hit? You know, taking this four cases here, three kegs there. There's a guys that sit in rooms all day just looking at maps. And then they're trying to figure out, well, construction's here. How to we get can't around park it. there. It's just amazing. And that's true with food. I mean, in the restaurant business especially, you got a produce truck. You know, we, we got our tortilla guy. We've got our, 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 our big items coming in. The logistics are crazy. I try to make things as easy as possible. So I go, we, we, do, we do a lot of food. And so I tell my vendors, I said, look, I want to make this easy. Put all my stuff on a pallet. And when the driver gets here, we'll take it off with a forklift and take it to the kitchen. Instead of him with a hand truck right. making 10 or 15 right. trips, just wrap it all on a pallet. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, because you're out of my way, right. <laughs> the faster, exactly. and everything and everything works out. I mean, there's little things that when you think about what other people have got to do. Yep. Like one, I was sitting there, and every couple of months, these guys show up all blurry-eyed at like 11 o'clock at night, just when the kitchen's closing, and and they show up, and they got a big steam, you know, a, a generator on a trailer, and they're going to drag a couple hundred feet of steam hose through your restaurant they're going to go up a ladder onto the roof then they're going to sit there and they're going to power steam wash your hood and your vents and okay. so there's grease everywhere it could be right. raining it's dark lights always bad nobody right. ever puts floodlights on it and i'm like god i look at these guys and they come down and they've got a clip like uh, this big bag on a 16 foot hood so then all that grease drains down into a garbage can and we got to take that into the grease traps and it's quite so when I started designing my own places, I'm like, you know, I look in the morning, I see where greasy hoses have been dragged through. The, you know, it'll come through the front door, go through the restaurant, into the kitchen, out, up a, and I go, I went and priced out, how much is a steam hose? Oh, it's not bad. So I put in a chase. So now I have a hose that comes out right at the hood up there, and I have 20 feet of hose that sits out wrapped up um, um, above table number seven on the patio. Sure. So these guys pull up, hook it up to their trailer, take their gun, walk up the stairs, and they go to town. Oh, no reeling it up, right. no cleaning up after any of that. So I, I cut that thing down, and it was like, I think it cost me maybe 150 bucks every three or four years to replace that hose. There you go. <laughs> and I'm like, there you go, pretty easy. Yeah. And it's also, you get really loyal. It's hard to get somebody to do that job, because there's somebody who owns the company, but he's hiring guys, and once the guys are doing it, it's always a nighttime job because you right. can't do it during the day, and they're going, oh, God, I hate this job. So they're constantly like, oh, sorry, we can't do your hoods this week because so-and-so quit. Right. But with us, they're like, we love doing you because we don't have to do all of the hose dragging sure. or anything else. And I put nice lights up there for them. Mm -hmm. I built work platforms so they don't have to, you know, like, guess and do this. It's sure. all the little stuff that doesn't take much to do, but it's just really recognizing that yeah. there's that that there's that problem there sure. you know when i have like some in the kitchen i had some 
pretty short people working for me for a while, so I took one of the tables and I cut it down six inches. Because if you work naturally, if you're sitting there chopping with a knife all day, try doing it on a taller table. Right. You go home at night and your shoulders are killing you because right. it's unnatural. You want to work at your waist. Right. So I'm like, let's just chop four legs off and make a shorter table. Right. <laughs> you know, it's pretty easy stuff, but it's recognizing that that's something that, you know, you see some guy going, oh, my shoulder's killing me. You're like, oh, yeah. And I figured it out by, um, I was doing the books uh, uh, every day. So I'd come on in, and 20 years ago, there was like 80% cash, 20% charge or whatever. And I'd sit there up on this table that I had in the office. It was, a, it was like bar height, and I'd be counting like this. And I'd be like, I'd get home, and I'm like, wow. So I, so I went to a, a chiropractor, and he's like, what do you do? And so I tell him, brew, brew, and then, well, what else? And then he kind of goes, do you ever work like this? I said, well, yeah, just have to do foot. He goes, don't. Right. Sit on a taller stool, sure. <laughs> and then it went away. Yeah. So it's like going, wow, that's like, you know, you could go with something your whole life. Right. And realizing, you know, oh, that's been a rock in my shoe this whole time. Exactly. <laughs> Tip the shoe upside down and go. So um, anyway, going forward, uh, you know, Barrio has been around forever. Um, we've got just intense Tucson loyalty, which is great. When we were talking about local early, you know, Phoenix has such a massive population. It's hard to, like, get wrapped around, you know, what's local or who's local. You know, we belong to local First Arizona, and they're doing a really big yeah. push for that. It's, it's, it's like you can, pick up, you can pick up a sports team maybe and say I'm a, I'm a Coyotes fan or I'm a Diamondbacks fan. Right. But there's so many people who are like, no, I'm still a Steelers fan because I moved here from Pittsburgh. Or right. I'm still yeah. a whatever, you know, because I think when I, Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> when I was like, uh, uh, you know, there's a million people in Tucson. And there's probably, I don't know, maybe 250,000 people that are actually locals. You know, if you think about the University of Arizonans and things like that moving back and forth, so it's, it's important to keep that. And, and some of the things that we do as a company to do so is that Tucson, over the last 25 years or so, we used to have our own butchers, we used to have our own food vendors, we used to have all of that. And then when Phoenix started growing so big, the companies thought, you know what? We can just have a place in Phoenix and put trucks on the road every night and drive them to Tucson instead of having a Tucson warehouse. And so that's what happened with Shamrock and with Kraft. And they no longer, the trucks pour down the freeway every day, bringing Tucson its food. There's one company here that managed to uh, survive because the, the big companies would come to town they drop their margins to zero, run all the little guys out of business, right. and then jack the prices back up. Sure. There was one company, Merit Foods, that hung in there tough, and they made it through. The big companies had to go back to a normalization of pricing, and Merit now is the only, the only local company here that literally has food in their warehouses that doesn't have to drive down I-10. So I tell my, my, my kitchen people, I go, if, if Merit's anywhere close on pricing, they get the business, right. period. We had the big company Shamrock going, we're gonna send you to Rome, we're gonna send you to, we're gonna send you uh, to the Bahamas, we're gonna right. send you on a cruise to Alaska, we're gonna, and then we realized that that's all a, a great, but if for some reason something gets missed on my order, I'm not gonna drive to Phoenix to get it, right. but if something's missed on my order, Merit Foods is 15 minutes from here, and, 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 and my sales guy 
will say, you know what, I'll have it to you in an hour. So it's super important to try to keep local alive. And right. so we do that across the board with you know anybody and everybody we can. Um, it's just that's the first box that's got to be checked with us. Is yeah. there any other alternative other than that? So and it's it's important not only because you know I want to be able to drive down the block and be able to pick up some French fries that happen to not make the order, but it also creates jobs in the community and which eventually leads to being my customers in the community as well. So yeah. it's a very uh, nice you know circle of life kind of a way to, to do things and, and it's um, I mean Tucson Tucson's really it's Tucson and Phoenix are so different yeah. Oh, yeah. and it's and it's nice because I, I I think it would be hard to maintain the loyalty of, of clientele in Phoenix um, but in Tucson I'm looking at the same faces right. sitting on bar stools for, for decades and it's just so nice to, to see that um, it's so important do you think that do do you do what do you I'm sorry I, I got I lost my train of thought I'm listening to this great crowd of people downstairs and they're they're starting to get louder and louder and louder so I think that the place is really filling up down there. Tis the season yeah, we yeah. we have uh, we could be doing twice we're building a an event center on the north side of town that's going to be extraordinary. It's going to have some features that um, I, I, we're waiting for some road construction to get done before we launch it. Um, but we're going to have some things that are unique, not only to Tucson, but to the United States of America. Wow. And it's, it is like, it's like, why not? We are thinking so far outside the box. And my wife and I at heart really love designing and building things. Our first kid, Taylor Jane. She's like, okay, I'm a senior in high school, you know, um, going to U of A. Uh, what do you think I should major in? And my wife goes, I want an architect. <laughs> okay, well, five years later, she's got an architect. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, draw me this, draw me that, you know, and everything like that. And it's kind of so fun that way yeah. because we love to design build and we are, we are just cat and dog because she is all about form and I am all about function. Yeah, she yeah. doesn't give a damn how it works. She just cares how it looks. Yeah. And so I'm like, but male, female. Yeah. That's all I got to say. You can't, that doesn't fit there. Right. You know, and, and I, you know, I look at it three-dimensionally and she's like, this is what it's going to look like. So if you go into the IPA room below that, I don't know if you were in this second section, uh. it's unique. You go in there and everything we built was reclaimed from weird places. Um, there's some antiques from India in there, oh, hand-carved wow. rosewood window sets. and Rosewood. So this thing is it's like 14, it's 10 foot tall, 14 or 17 foot wide, stained glass. It's gorgeous. And it was a piece that was in a furniture store. There was a national furniture store. Um, that was just, the guy was making bucks. So he'd travel the world, he'd buy all these gorgeous pieces, and they would be the sets in his furniture store as dividers, you know, these antiques. Hmm. And so when things went south in, in 7, 8, and then that guy goes bankrupt, hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. well, the person who owned the shopping center, when they had the auction of all the furniture that was in all of his places, there were these pieces. 
and they go to auction them, and the owner of the place goes, those things are attached or affixed to the building, so the only thing you can sell are the furniture you can move. Right. Well, the shopping center owner then realizes he lost two major tenants, and he's going to lose his shopping center, so he knows that I'm like Fred Sanford incarnate, <laughs> and he goes, you got 48 hours, and I say, okay, crew, let's go, brewery, to Team Barrio, and we got trucks, and we went down there, and we had to make cradles, you know, we, we bring casters, tires, anything, <laughs> and we God cleared everything out out of the building by Sunday night, and he threw the uh, bank the keys back on Monday, and then it turns into the IPA room. <laughs> wow. So it's like everything. You're like, wow, that's interesting. Where'd you get that? I mean, at one point in this back alley, we'd had a lot of tin to do the inside, but not enough. And we're like, new tin, well, like corrugated tin. Yeah, new new tin looks horrible. Old tin looks cool. So we got our kids, and this goes back when they're like, what are they, 28, 27, 21 now? So we've been here. You know, since 12 or 13 years, so they're pretty young. We buy new tin and we'd lay it in the alley on weekends and we'd walk through with different chemicals to break the zinc, you know, like muriatic uh, acid same, 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 and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then we'd stack them all back up using child labor. And then the next week we'd pull it out and things got nasty. We'd hose them out and then we'd go back over it with like ferric nitrate, which is like a, a speed ruster. And then we put them back together, pull them back out the next weekend, wash them all down, they'd be all rusty. Then we'd come back with little green and blue patinas with spray bottles and then stack them back together. And then it's hard to pick out what the new tin is from the old tin. Yeah. And then we were able to complete all of the stuff going around. Sure. So it was kind of a fun process of always, you know, kind of like what works and what doesn't. It's like some of the chemicals. Next week we pull it up, there'd be big holes eating through the steel. We're like, Whoop, a little too far. Better time for a little bit more dilution on that. And uh, you know, much. and uh, put the safety glasses back on the six-year-old, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it was it was fun, and, and it also we were able to always have our kids around because they were working with us. Yeah. And so child, that was nothing something, wrong with child yeah, labor. Yeah, that's. Uh, that was something that um, you know was was nice because you know other otherwise you're in a restaurant working and your kids are you know getting right yeah. home with Aunt Mary and you're Isn't not seeing them until you're making them yeah. lunch the next morning. So yeah. putting them to work at 13 years old and working them through the time it took to get into college, you know they are they all it, there, there was a double blessing to it. We got to we got to see them and they got to see what the world looked like from an early age. Mm. So when they got to college, they realized what drunk and stupid looked like. Yeah. And so they <laughs> all are getting out on time from college, and they all were in really challenging professions, uh, or at least studies. And um, you know, I take it back to, I remember my daughter was 14 years old, and we're slammed, and my youngest. And um, my, my wife goes, here, get out there. Um, we're charging 10 bucks to get in, you know, it's homecoming. So we're like, okay, let's do this and, and, and we can charge cover. And so she throws my 14 year old out there with a cash drawer like this. And so she's charging everybody $10. And the guy goes, I just want to use the bathroom. She goes, exactly. We have bathrooms. Right. And they're $10. <laughs> 
So I was sitting there going, God, God bless her, good answer. And then I see this guy walk up, and he looked like a freshman in college. And he kind of goes up, and he puts his hand on hers and goes, Hi, my name's Bobby. And she goes, Hi, I'm 14. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't get that working right. in an office. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, They've gotten yeah. great senses of humor. Little Reagan's so kind. She, she just turned uh, 21 in, uh, at the end of August. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, now we can go out and have a beer together and things like that. And she goes, yeah. A year earlier, I said, so are you excited to turn 20? And she goes, the only thing I can say that's different between 19 and 20 is I beat teen pregnancy. That's keeping it real right there. Yeah. And now, yeah. you know, it's like going, okay, now here you are to the world. Bring me grandbabies and then my life will be complete. So there you go. I don't know. I, I, I've been super fortunate that not, you know, Nothing horrible's ever happened, and my wife and I were going through files as we're as we're doing this process, and we're finding paperwork from the early '90s, and we're like, it was like a trip down bad memory lane. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was like I remember I wrote my my landlord a letter um, right after 9/11, and I said things aren't good. I go if things continue like this. I mean, yesterday I had a lady go screaming out of the bathroom, yelling anthrax, anthrax, everybody out. And everybody's on nerves anyway. If you remember that time, there was like, mm -hmm. there was that, and somebody yeah. started shipping anthrax around. Mm -hmm. I go running into the bathroom, yeah, sure enough, the baby, you know, cradles down, there's, there's talcum powder on it, and this lady's going anthrax. Oh, so I type a letter up to my Landlord, and I say, you know, if things get bad and stay bad for this long, can we talk about deferring rent? Not forgiveness, but deferral for another time. Can we start that conversation? And I got back a no. Yeah. Just a hard no. That's when I said, I'll, I'll always own the property from this day forward. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's where we went. It was a way to get, you know, that's, it can get ugly. Sure. So, if, so if people want to come check out Barrio Brewing, which I highly recommend, I had the Citrusona. Tasty beer. Tasty, tasty beer. I like it too because all the letters of Arizona, all right, you, you can't spell Arizona without Citrusona. Uh, Maybe that should be the slogan. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So I had the Citrusona and, and the food looked amazing as well. Uh, where are we located? So We're located just uh, south of downtown at 800 East 16th Street. Uh, Google is your friend, and um, we would love to have everybody come on down. It's super cool seeing beer tourists come through. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love talking to them. I, I when I built the bars, I built an extra foot on the inside of the bars just so I can stand on that side uh, because as the owner, um, I can drink on premises. Yeah. So I sit on that side of the bar and I just meet. Na neighbors and yeah. get all kinds of interesting people out there. Cool. Um, it's kind of nice being face to face instead of, you know, awkwardly standing behind them going hi. Yeah. We, we had a we had a, a, a chicken thigh showdown the other day. So Lorenzo in the kitchen and thinks himself to be the finest uh, 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 Mexican food connoisseur ever. We went chicken thigh, boneless chicken thigh on marinades yesterday. So ah. we've been doing some some fun stuff and we cooked off forty pounds of chicken thighs, and then we made up, boy, I don't even know how many tacos, but I personally walked them through the whole place, taco to taco, taco one, taco two, tell me which is better. 
And then an hour later, however long, everybody took the scores, and I, I, I think I won like 73 to 12. Oh, uh, yes! So now we've got a new chicken thigh recipe for our chicken tacos taco. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, it's fun stuff that way. Right on. And, uh, yeah, see how it happens. Fun, beer, fun. beer and tacos, I just... Both good things. Yeah. Both great yes, things. So. yes. Well, your story's been fascinating. We really appreciate uh, all the time. Yeah. Appreciate you guys coming down. Absolutely. I, my, my, my daughter, Reagan, has turned me on to podcasts. Oh, yeah. Because I don't, I've never been on social media in my life. Yeah. And so she she goes, and she goes, when she goes and works out, she goes, these podcasts. And I said, what? And so then she sends them to me. And I start clicking on them. I'm going, this is a world I never knew about. It's yeah. an unbelievable world. Yeah. yeah. I just like, she. the first bu- person she clicked me was like, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Oh yeah, that thing. guy. That one, he's yeah. fascinating. He's fascinatingly yeah. mind blowing. He's he is. Yes. And then now she's throwing me all this. Is it something Grogan? Joe Rogan. Oh yeah, Joe, Joe Rogan. Rogan. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Yeah. You know. So now I'm going like maybe that's what I'll do because I usually just drive around. You know, with with like voices, with with voices in my head, no music, yeah, yeah, yeah. and now they will drown them out with podcasts and. And uh, you know, super enjoyable what what you guys do. Well, um, and let, let me know if you want to talk again. Absolutely, we, we absolutely will. We will certainly will. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. you very much. I'll thank take sir. you through the IPA. Yeah. Thank you for joining us here at the Not So Native Podcast. Be sure to check us out on our website, notsonativepodcast.com, and leave a comment or two. Also, follow us on social media to get the latest update on our adventures. Until next time. Until next time.